Welcome to Confessions of History Geeks, a Museum of North Idaho podcast. For over 50 years, the museum has collected, preserved, and interpreted the history of North Idaho. Confessions of History Geeks is recorded in the historic J.C. White House, which is currently being remodeled, and is brought to you by a grant from the Idaho Humanities Council. Special thanks goes to James Supp of Coronado Trading Company for assistance with this podcast. The Museum of North Idaho is a nonprofit that appreciates its members, donors, and community for their support. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to this is part two of our Nell Shipman series. I am your host, Sarah Jane Ruggles. I am a local public historian and instructor of U.S. History at North Idaho College. For today's episode, I am happy to be joined by my fellow Foxy history geek. Mrs. Jocelyn Whitfield Babcock. Introduce yourself to the folks, Jocelyn. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I am Jocelyn Whitfield Babcock, Development and Marketing Director for the Museum of North Idaho. And the format for this dramatic reading podcast is going to differ from our other broadcasts. Sarah Jane and myself are going to dialogue through Nell Shipman's life in North Idaho with her writings peppered throughout. It's the way that made the most sense. And, you know, Nell Shipman had such an intriguing life that we have to dialogue about it. We can't just spout facts about that. So I'm going to be quoting uh, writings as Nell Shipman and uh, be advised sometimes she wrote in third person. I also want the audience to understand that I am not a historian, so I might forget myself and place an opinion here or there during the discussion. However, Sarah Jane, you are a historian, so uh, you will, <laughs> you're charged with having to have a more balanced view of the events and keeping me in check. And if you haven't listened to the last episode, be sure to check that out to uh, learn more about her upbringing and her training and uh, the history of how she became an actress and uh, the beginning of her career, which led her to our area, to our region. So it was kind of like, move over, Hollywood. I'm heading north. We talk about her history, and uh, in this episode, we're going to touch on her story and memories that she made in beautiful Priest Lake, Idaho, and we're going to celebrate the history she made here. She remains independent when right now, the in this time, the independent filmmakers are becoming obsolete, uh, and they're really being forced out and, and forced to come under these big umbrellas. So um, she goes up north to Spokane to Minnehaha Studios to film her was it the grub steak at this point? Yes. So the there was a set at Minnehaha. Might still be there uh, in the park. Right. And that's where uh, they did kind of all of the acting with people. <laughs> and yeah. uh, all of the acting, all of the outdoors scenes that you see in the grub steak, those were filmed in Priest Lake, Idaho. Yeah. And so she moves her entire zoo to Priest Lake, right? Yes. They, they rent uh, a cabin and the land from Sam, Sam Byers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a quote in the Spokane 
newspapers um, that I understand you have about um, how society uh, talked about her at the time. I think it's really interesting to take that pause and see how we received her in the inland northwest yeah. uh, a lot of times it's even described how glamorous she was getting off the train you know she was known at, for her silent films even here mm-hmm. and uh you know this actress has come up here and she's gonna film up here and everyone was really excited well, the locals would help her build her sets and everything wouldn't they yeah yeah she depended very much on, on local help uh including extras and right. in the movies so she does reference uh, the Spokesman Review uh, articles about her, and I, I found it really interesting, her take on our press. Right. The rival morning and evening press belonged to the same man and always played it two ways. If one boosted, the other acted mean. But they both praised the show and the bob-haired brunette. <laughs> The Spokesman Review hung this one on me and somehow made me sound like a gun mole. Their society editor usually referred to me as Mrs. Van Tile in that mysterious thing called private life. I was not and could not be since there already was a wife. As to the Bob, that was another first. The flu fever bald spots had grown out and I had short, naturally curly hair. Rather suspect at the time. So was the leather overcoat, which I changed for seal skin. Glossy, smart, and more stylish. So didn't Nell also write a book during this time? I think it was a fictional drama? So the fictional drama came out about within the decade after she left Priest Lake. And the reason that I I read it, uh, thank you to the Boise State University Library for... Mm -hmm. Sending that over because, you know, it was published in the 30s, the 1930s. And when I read her autobiography, there are some gaps in it where she's like, well, I don't really remember what happened next. But when you reference this book, uh, I think it was about eight or nine years after she left Priest Lake, she seemed to remember then. And it was very autobiographical. Uh, everything that happened with uh, Bert and his foot is in there. I yeah. <laughs> She does say Spokane by name, but she does not say Priest Lake. She calls it Weir Lake. Hmm. I, I don't know why she changed that particular. Maybe so people wouldn't go there. So <laughs> that could be, right? <laughs> don't go look for my, my lodge. Yeah. Um, but when I was reading through it, it, she remembered then. You know, and I, I'm glad that that wasn't something that was still really heavy on her heart. But right. I, I feel like it filled in a lot of gaps for me because when I was reading her autobiography and it's like okay well what caused that well why are you going out onto the ice and we'll we'll get to that part but right. just what's going through your head don't tell me you don't know right exactly <laughs> and uh in the fictional story either she did remember or she came up with something that you know satisfies me to go oh well that makes sense right it, it, it's almost like her fictional story was based on her life because a lot of her, the characters that she wrote, um, you can correlate them to her fictional drama. Oh, yeah. It, she names her dog Trezor in Abandoned yeah. Trails. Right. So 
Right. <laughs> and and unfortunately, Tresor has a, a sad ending. But so after after they filmed the Grub Steak and Priest Lake uh, and Spokane, um, that was her that was her baby. The Grub Steak was her opus. Wasn't it was, it? yeah. Um, and so she she actually she wraps up the movie, but um, the actors go are homesick when they're done filming. Uh, and they want to go back to Hollywood, but they don't have their final pay because she needs the money to keep her zoo going. Uh, and so and so she actually, when they're done filming, she goes back down to Hollywood to edit the film. But she's having to do it secretly because actors and their families are literally seeking her out to get paid. And yeah. she is cutting and splicing this movie and making it into what she wants it to be. And then they have to run it over to New York to yep. actually get it to a company to get it into distribution. Right. And she, she has a meeting with uh, with a screening company, but uh, she didn't think that it was going to go through. So she has a second meeting. They offer her $75,000 uh, for the movie. And so she thinks that, okay, this is probably as good as, it, as I'm going to get. She sells it to them. But then she comes back to her hotel that night and realizes that the first company had actually finally made an offer that was twice as much. As oh, man. The, yeah, as the second production uh, company was, uh, or distributing company. And they had like 100 more venues and they had a better system. So, Well, and the other one, I mean, they went bankrupt. Yeah, so she, she goes back to Priest Lake, from what I understand, and Sam Byers has tripled the rent. Oh. And she, so she can't afford to keep her zoo there anymore. So wasn't it, I think it was like in the middle of the night or something, they, they, they sneakily left. They didn't pay their last rent and kind of snubbed Sam Byers, and they went across Priest Lake to Lionhead Lodge and set up a new headquarters there for her zoo and Sam Byers has the final revenge on that because I think it was a fourth of July party she was throwing um and he takes a cyanide laced steak and canoes over to Lionhead Lodge he knows Trezor is her is her pride and joy and he tossed the steak onto the shore and Trezor eats it and seriously he's how, i didn't know they knew who poisoned the dog well that that's what historians believe happened that he okay. was taking his final revenge so that's what i've read um, you know what him. i love about this you're the historian supposed to keep me and my <laughs> opinions into check <laughs> and i'm sitting here like the museum does not authorize that this sam from, byers is a dog murderer i've heard this from canadian <laughs> archivists <laughs> Oh, yes, the Canadians are now telling us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So she, so after she's dealing with this, um, her relationship with Bert is starting to fall apart. And tr she's now the distri distribution company that bought the grub steak, like you said, files for bankruptcy. Yeah. And it never is screened. It's never seen. And so she's out all the money that she put into that film. And so she starts to go downhill. Things become repossessed. Her animals are starving. Um, so Priest Lake, even though it was probably the most successful time of her life, was also the beginning of the end, I think, for her career. And it's so sad because she described Priest Lake as the Ultima Thule. So, you know, just that was her homeland. 
her relationship with Bert Van Tyle also during this time is falling apart because he's developed the gangrene yes. from his uh, his leg, and it's starting to drive him absolutely mad. So the last real national headline that she got um, was from an instance where he had gone mad, and it was during winter in Priest, and he had s- he, she found him just raving. And he swore he was going to go to Kulin to get medical help. And so he takes off in the snow. And she's trying to care for him but not humiliate him. So she takes her dog sled and she goes after him. But she stays a far enough distance back so she doesn't humiliate him. She knows she's going to have to swoop him up at some point. Yeah. But isn't it a scene straight out of Back to God's Country? It, it really is. Um and the way it's described at the end, really, you know, because uh, to get through the thoroughfare, right, you either had to boat in, right, or when it was frozen over, you had to dog sled. And then there is a part where it, you know, the lake is a little warmer, and so now you're on the shoreline. Right. And while she was on the shoreline with the dog sled, uh, she stepped into the frozen water and she didn't want to get frostbite like Bert did. And yeah. so she knew that she had to take her wet socks off. And when she finally catches up to him and he looks down and she's not wearing any socks and he inquires after that and she explains. And now it's like, oh, Nell's in trouble. He actually agrees to stand on the dog sled she's now riding in the dog sled so he she made it in a way that he recognizes that I'm in trouble and I need help and so he kind of snaps out of his madness and she gets in the sled and he gets on the sled and they uh, well uh, they get far enough that uh, some burly logger finds them because she also sent people for help oh okay the Spokane Daily Chronicle. So January 19th, 1924. Wind, desperate struggle for life in snow and cold of North Idaho. Nell Shipman, movie star and sick partner, conquer untold difficulties in two-day battle over 30-mile stretch at Priest Lake. Right. And even though it does make national headlines, it really doesn't help her career. I mean, it's it's really in, in, in a downfall. Uh, and so she ends up, their, their relationship falls apart. And unfortunately, uh, because she's in this bankrupt state, um, there, she has to leave Priest Lake. She has to leave Idaho. Oh, that's not when, when she left. I, I think it's important, and I'm going to put a little disclaimer for parents about an intense scene of a domestic dispute that, right. you know... Uh, my six-year-old wouldn't understand, so I would put in earbuds right. at uh, this time. Mm-hmm. But the, I believe that Bert is the exact reason why she leaves That's and true. why she can't come back because he did stay here for a little while. Right. So this is where it gets a little bit darker, but I, I think it's important to... It's part of the trauma that creates her story and her character in life. And uh, this is kind of where I use both her autobiography and her fictional novel, Abandoned Trails, to kind of fill in the gaps. Right. 
That Christmas night was fairly warm. A Chinook wind had blown away a stretch of sub-zero weather, and there was a moon and a fall of light snow. I may wonder now, in the illuminated pages of hindsight, how much the presence of the new helper, young Sid, made for the dolling-up process. Since that abortive personal appearance tour to Sandpoint and Bonner's Ferry, this was the first time I'd shucked my layers of woolens and arrayed myself in a crepe dress with gauzy sleeves and rutching at the neck. Perhaps when Sid and I answered the radio's pulsing rhythm and danced, I unwittingly created the one image needed to complete the unhinging of a mind already traveling a dark and dead-end trail. I switched off the music, came to sit across the room from Sid, crossed my silken knees, and swung my high-heeled pumps. We chatted. The sort of banal talk women just past the borderline of youth indulge in confronted with a man eight years her junior. A man stumbled to the window and peered in upon a picture which must have been a prototype of every movie scene of like import. This one I had not written. The gun burnt helt, muzzle pressed to the glass, was my own automatic thirty-eight and loaded. Its place on the antlers framing the front door was now vacant, so he must have taken it, slipped outside while we danced, and now watched. He came into the room, moving slowly, painfully. No one spoke, and Bert sank into a chair, keeping the gun leveled on me. After an interval, he began to monologue. So Bert is basically confronting her at gunpoint because she had danced with this other good-looking actor. Yes. And during this whole thing, who does she write is sitting outside the cabin in her... She goes on to describe uh, Barry's view. Yeah. Watching from outside the cabin, Barry saw his mother get up and leave the room. He tells me that neither man followed. There was no gunshot, no scream, nothing. I do recall that I headed for the lake in my high-heeled pumps, silk stockings, and flowing crepe de chine dress. I was going to the thoroughfare. A sliver of remaining wisdom warned me that the bay ice would hold, frozen to a three-foot depth, but the thoroughfare would still be open, and there I would find my way into the dark silence. And so, says the man who was once the child, his mother started out on the ice, and he, carrying his bull's-eye lantern, followed her. I do remember the sound of his voice from behind the round-eyed beam of his Boy Scout torchlight. Please come home. Please. She flung her arms about the child, crying out wild words in which Dirk, well, Bert, so now I'm, right. I'm in the fictional. Yeah. The fire and the burning animals were all hopelessly mixed, the terrified boy pressed against her, patting her arm and making little soothing noises in his throat. She looked at the black gash of the thoroughfare in the white field of ice and sobbed. I can't. Oh, dear God, I can't. She grasped his hand. We must run before it begins. Run fast. Maybe we can get to the Lone Star. Her hair fell about her face. The sleek silk dress clung to her body, its long skirt whipping her legs and streaming behind her. She was some eerie witch escaping on the wings of her own terror. Hand in hand they ran, stumbling through the drifts, falling, gathering themselves up. 
the woman crying over and over, come, Stanley, run. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very sad scene of her complete and utter breakdown. Yeah. Um, it, to the point to where she's lost her, she's losing her company. Her husband has, well, her lover has yeah. gone mad. Um, she's responsible for a zoo that's starving, uh, a son who she's trying to keep it together for, and it's not working. It all falls apart. So, um, and he actually has an oral history interview where he describes his view of this. And he, he described himself as a, as a Boy Scout at the time. Yeah. And he goes, I just saw someone pointing a gun at my mother and I was outside with my little 22. He goes, I didn't know if I would pull the trigger or not. But he goes, I just, I knew that a man had a gun on my mother. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and then she just went running and I just went after her. So... Um, it, it's a very sad scene, but it is the, the culmination of realizing that this is the end of a lot of things. So, And that's um, why I wanted to bring in abandoned trails, because right. he's got a gun on her, then she's going to commit suicide, and it, what, what happened in between? The right. autobiography doesn't tell us, but the fictional book says he threatened to burn Lionhead Lodge and all of her animals, and, and that's when she snapped. Exactly. And... So they actually sought refuge. Uh, they went to the Lone Star and then from there to Coolin and from there to Spokane. Uh, Nell went to New York to try to find some investors for her new feature film and a cameraman. She intended to return back to Lionhead Lodge to her animals, but no one would back the film. So a judge in Idaho ruled that her animals were to be sold to pay her debts. So that was a, that was a not even a gut punch. That's a soul punch right there. That's her whole love yeah um the san diego zoo heard of her plight in an article and uh published by the spokesman review uh that was then republished by the associated press and they ended up taking all the animals so she recalls in her autobiography that she slept and slept for a while after that and uh barry remained in, in a school in spokane while nell stayed in a uh brownstone with friends in new york so this is where Nell was introduced to the next love of her life. And her autobiography really doesn't go past Priest Lake, right? And, no, it doesn't. It's almost like life ended when she left Idaho. Right. And, and because of that, it's, the reason for that is that she never found success again. She found, she found another lover. They went to, they did what all the fabulous people were doing in the 19, late 1920s and became expatriates to Europe. Uh, and uh, they ended up, she gave birth to twins when they were living in Spain, and then they came back because she still had that itch to be the starlet. She wanted to rebuild herself, and um, she ends up leaving him and the children, and the, the children go back and forth, but they don't have a healthy relationship with her, with their mother, and she and Barry stay close. Uh, after that relationship falls apart, she meets kind of a con man named Amerigo and they go all around the country trying to rebuild her career and nothing really takes off. She ends up uh, destitute and reliant on, you know, she's at a point where she doesn't, the bridges that she hadn't burned in Hollywood, those people are no longer working in Hollywood. So she doesn't really have any connections anymore. And so she becomes kind of obsolete. She actually applies to stay in a home for senior affiliates of the industry they actually have a retirement community and um the canadian archives actually has the response letter where they refused her saying she is they could not find 
merit to show that she was affiliated with the industry. Yeah. Who knows if that results from the blackballing she experienced after Back to God's Country and that whole thing. The, but, but the full page ad that says don't book this film. Exactly. So I don't know <laughs> if that was continuing to haunt her into her old age, but um, she ends up uh, passing away in 1970, uh, living on a friend's dude ranch for animals that they trained to work in Hollywood. And one of the things that really struck me about the end of her life was she had zero money. They even repossessed her beloved typewriter. She had nothing. But she could make cassette tapes for her great-grandchildren. And there's, there's these cassette tapes are archived. And you can actually hear her. And uh, it's really eerie where she sits alone in her house and she goes... Merry Christmas to West Westerly Anne. This is Great Grandma Nell, and you you can hear her just dramatic tone. But there's this like eerie train whistle in the background. It's just it's just silent, you know. And mm-hmm. and she's hit a point where she can't even send them a gift. All she can do is she can say these cassette or record these her tales and her adventures, which is to me the greatest gift of all. And now it's an archive treasure. But so after all these repossessions, the fascinating thing about after her death is how we even have her stuff in the first place. Um, can you give a little insight into the treasure hunt that had to go on to obtain all of her stuff? The Trusky Papers. Yeah. Um, so he's an English professor from Boise State University. And he has amassed the largest collection of Nell Shipman memorabilia in the world. You know, it's as a researcher, and, and you're a historian, so it's kind of the same thing. You know, something bites you, and then you have to just consume all of the information like that you collector. can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, he was very smart about going to estate sales. Mm-hmm knowing that all of her things were repossessed, they were sold in in this area, and that, you know, in the 1970s, that was right around the time it had been 50 years, and people who had those possessions would have been passing, Mm -hmm. and their kids and grandkids wouldn't know. They were looking at photographs of Nell Shipman. They They didn't know who she was. Like you said, she had become rather obscure. And that's where a majority of the photographs have been found is him actually going to estate sales up here in North Idaho. Right. So thank you for all of yeah. the work he did in treasure hunting all this time to find all this stuff about Nell Shipman. Otherwise, we wouldn't have half of this juicy history to... Finding her her novels, enjoy. finding her letters. Yes. Yeah. So he found a lot of documents. Not a lot of artifacts have been recovered. Right. And, and museums in Canada have been... Um, doing restoration on her films that have, that are popping up in a very similar way in these estate sales and um, back in the dusty corners of old movie houses. And um, so a lot of restoration is actually going on. I, I think that she would be charmed at the amount of work that's gone into restoring her, her work. 
I think. I, I think she would say, well, it's about time. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, 20, 2021, let's uh, get this going. You know, there are a lot of women in history that everyone says they were born before their time, but I think we can say quite literally that a female director is yeah. 100 years before her time because conversations about female directors and the lack thereof has over the last just couple of years, have right. people have been talking about that. Like, where are these women directors? And right. there's only 16%. Why, why, aren't they, why aren't there more? Right, exactly. And the movie she filmed in Canada was actually, by those standards, if you put it into perspective, it was the most successful Canadian film. And was it in history or... Because it's it actually amassed three hundred percent profit. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was for the time, so you have to put it in context of the time. Yeah. Um, but she did experience success. She did experience being an A list celebrity for her time. Nell Shipman was I I can't say she was a hero. She is a role model in some sense because she is so complex. There are elements of her that I truly admire, but she is also her own worst enemy in a lot of facets. And, so true. And, and so while I praise her for her determination and her the purity that she was determined to preserve of her own artistry and her confidence in it, she also was not willing to compromise. And I understand that that can be a, a virtue, but it can also be quite a vice. So, you know, to each his own. Uh, but it's kind of, I wouldn't deify her, but I would definitely celebrate her and what she accomplished. And then just be realistic about her story because she, she was human. She had faults as well as virtues. So thank you for sharing her story with me and, and talking it out. And it's been really fun to get to know now. Yeah, yeah, and I want to give a nice shout out again to the Boise State University Library for assisting me with my research and also the Community Library Network at Post Falls for the interlibrary loan of the girl from God's Country, Nell Shipman, and the silent cinema. Yeah, definitely recommend her, her autobiography. That's Oh, yeah, that, great uh, that is called The Silent Screen and My Talking Heart. And a lot of the reason why we chose Nell Shipman for this podcast was the thought of a silent, you know, silent movie actress who had a lot to say. Absolutely. Right. Well, thanks, Nell, for the memories. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Confessions of History Geeks. A Museum of North Idaho podcast where history is brought to life by the curators of the stories and culture of North Idaho. Visit the museum's website at www.museumni.org for articles about our area's history and for ways you can help us keep history alive for our future.